0: This is Positive Parenting, parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brat.
1: Hey there, welcome to today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brat. Millions of fathers are currently in the fight of their lives, the fight for custody of their children. Many wonder if they'll ever be able to be an important part of their children's lives again. In any kind of a divorce situation, the issues are huge, and they're sometimes very, very expensive. For example, how do you know when to settle or when to go to court? How do you know when you need a lawyer and when you can handle things on your own? Do you know the appropriate techniques for dealing effectively with psychologists and social workers and other domestic relations experts? And how do you handle a situation if you happen to be married to somebody from another country who takes your kids back to that country and that country does not respect a joint custody order from the United States? You've got some big problems, and in no place are those problems more present or bigger or more impactful than when the dad is in the military. The military will absolutely go after dads who are not paying their child support or who are doing other irresponsible things and not handling their parental responsibilities, but they are not going to represent a dad who's having a custody issue and his ex-spouse is not letting him see the kids as often as he's entitled to. In this part of today's show, we're going to be having a very important discussion about divorce from the dad's perspective and particularly from the military dad's perspective with one of the nation's top father's rights attorneys. She's got some realistic and hard-hitting and sometimes harsh but very fair advice about what dads need to do to protect themselves and their relationships with their kids. We'll jump right in when Positive Parenting continues right after this.
2: Ever notice when you have a baby, everyone seems to give you advice? From your mother-in-law to your own parents to your friends. But when it comes to the important stuff, like immunizations and protecting my baby's health, I trust my baby's doctor. She really listens to my questions about shots, gives me great information, and she works with me to make sure my baby gets protected. And that's something even my mother-in-law can agree with.
0: A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services.
1: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Jeffrey Leving, who is a father's rights attorney, the author of a number of books, including Father's Rights, in in Chicago, but he practices nationwide. Uh, Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us.
3: My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.
1: You know, you have uh, you and I have talked a lot over over the years about the work that you've done with the military, and I find it absolutely fascinating. I've done a lot of fathers' rights stuff myself, and have been through divorces a, a couple of times. And uh, but there are some issues that are specific to the military, or they're at least aggravated by conditions that that are in the military. And, and so, I want to have you talk about a lot of those things. And I, one of the things I remember I actually was, was uh, writing some of this stuff up and after we talked a previous time uh, about international law and guys, particularly guys who are marrying somebody, uh, for, well, I guess she's a foreign national. He's stationed at an overseas base and marries a local. And then the, the problems that that can cause if the relationship doesn't work out. Talk about some of those a little bit.
3: Those are really serious problems because some countries are signatories to the Hague Convention with our country, with the United States, and some aren't. And if a man is stationed overseas and in a country where that country is not a signatory to the Hague, and we are, and he gets married there or has a child there out of wedlock and comes back to the U.S., he may have a very difficult time maintaining a relationship with that with that child. So it's really, really, really uh, dangerous, and, and servicemen really need to talk to a lawyer who could who could provide some advice on how to think with your head, not your heart. Your heart's important, emotions are important, but you have to be careful because the last thing a man wants to do is is get married, have children, and never be able to see his children again.
1: Well, or, yeah, yeah. And I think the last thing a guy is even thinking about is, well, what if what if there's a problem here? I mean, I get married, and, yeah, what if there's a problem? How am I going to handle this situation? Everybody goes in thinking that it's going to last forever.
3: Exactly. I have a client who has two little boys, and his, his wife uh, or his former uh, spouse, they're now divorced, is Egyptian, and she took the children back to Egypt, and it's been a complete nightmare for him. Uh, His children are still in Egypt. He wants them back, and the, the mother has become very hateful toward him, and she's poisoning the children against him and against America, and Egypt is not very friendly to the U.S., so these are things really, really to be careful about, and last June, I was in Puerto Rico lecturing, and I was there with U.S. Navy Rear Admiral Clara Cobb, one wonderful person, and U.S. Army Major General John Hawkins, John R. Hawkins retired. Uh, he managed the personnel for the entire U.S. Army, and it was a great event. And we were lecturing and talking about issues affecting fatherhood as well as other issues because this is an important issue and an important issue for the military, because a lot of a lot of military dads and a lot of military mothers end up. with legal problems, and often they can't get the help they need, uh, especially because JAG officers cannot represent uh, uh, soldiers in civilian courts, and that's a whole other problem.
1: Well, that's got to be an incredibly frustrating thing, as you talk about JAG, the Judge Advocate Corps for those who are are not in in the military, uh, that they have a very limited scope of what they can do and they are perfectly happy to enforce child support orders but they won't enforce the access and visitation rights that that uh, a father or for that matter a mother may have how do you how do you handle that i mean you, these guys are, are have to go out into the civilian world and try to find an attorney which is probably not going to be cheap and exactly you know how how do they how do they know what the, that they have rights to begin with and what those rights are?
3: It's a struggle. I, I created the Fatherhood Educational Institute to try and provide some guidance to dads. That's outside of my law firm. It's a charity. Uh, and I also run the Illinois Council of Responsible Fatherhood, which is a government body in the state of Illinois, uh, which I chair uh, uh, at the pleasure of the governor. Uh, for free. I don't get paid for doing this. But it's tough because we need more resources for mili- the, the military when they are in these terrible situations. Uh, I, I recall one dad, uh, he was uh, serving in Iraq when he learned his four year old son was brutally beaten to death. Terrible, terrible. His wife, whom he thought he was having a healthy monogamous relationship with, uh, was having an affair and placed a child with her boyfriend. Who was later charged with the murder of this four-year-old boy? It was terrible, terrible. And when I found out about this, uh, this this sergeant had no idea what to do. He couldn't get a, a free lawyer uh, uh, through the army because JAG officers can't represent soldiers in civilian courtrooms. I represented him. It was a tough fight, and I actually represented him with Sergeant Jim Hagler, who's no longer in the military. He's retired. Uh, He was in the military for over 20 years. He's an attorney, and we work together. He's in my law firm. He's a great guy. And we fought as a team, and we're able to get the surviving children in the custody of the dad. And now he's still in the Army. He's obviously no longer in combat because he's taking care of his surviving children. But if he didn't have a, a civilian lawyer, if I didn't represent him, what could have happened to his surviving children? was It was a yeah. terrible situation. So we need to make sure that everybody in the military has counsel to protect their children, to protect themselves, even in civilian courts. That needs
1: to yeah. change. You know, when I was in the military, I remember in boot camp still very clearly, there was a guy who was a couple of years older than the rest of us probably, which means he was maybe 20 and the rest of us were 18. I was 17. Uh, but I remember the the drill instructor found out that this guy had had a child and he said something which I know many many other people have heard before which is you know if we would have wanted you to have a family we would have issued you one and that idea has has changed so much now that I think it's somewhere somewhere around 50 percent of military members have have kids and the the military itself takes the family obligations very very clearly certainly the needs of the service are going to trump everything but if you're as a as a father or as a mother if you're behaving irresponsibly if you're not paying your child support if you're if you're involved in domestic violence uh, you know the the military will come down hard on you but it seems like the the protections are not there
3: well i, I agree with you that's a very 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 uh, serious problem. One problem that I that concerns me is there are a lot of young dads out there uh, that are in the guard, and they have civilian jobs making it a halfway decent income. They they end up deployed. Uh, they they no longer have their civilian inc- uh, uh, income, and the military pay is usually less usually less but they have child support orders and if they don't modify those child support orders they may not be able to pay child support so they get activated uh, they're deployed they're making less money than their civilian salary they're not able to pay their child support they get further behind and then when they come home they have a big child support urge. sometimes uh, an ex-spouse in this situation was very vicious especially a parental alienator will file a contempt petition against that dad and try and have him found in contempt and locked up. And that's terrible. Now, that's really bad. It could destroy their credit. It's it's horrific. However, there's a solution. Before deployment, these military dads should get into court and modify their child support downward so they can pay it. And to do that, they need a competent lawyer, and that lawyer should be a JAG officer, but JAG officers can't go into civilian court and do that. So that's a change. It's a big change, and we need that change uh, now.
1: Is that something, Jeff, that's being looked at, that there's some discussion about having JAG officers be able to, to practice in civilian courts?
3: Well, that's something I recently discussed with the attorney jim Hagler, who's now retired from the military and that's something that we are we've been focusing and strategically trying to decide how to get this done because i've been doing a lot of work with the military and actually i'm supposed to lecture again but this time uh, in in jamaica and there will be a strong military presence there and this is something that really needs to change but it's not the only thing there are other problems too for instance if a deployed father uh, is is overseas, under what's called the Uniform Child Custody Jurisdiction Enforcement Act, Uh, the mother, uh, who's in the U.S., could move across country from Maine all the way to California or move to Hawaii, and if she can stay there six months or more, presumptively that becomes the home state. And then when Dad comes back, uh, he is a mess, and if there's litigation, he's probably going to end up litigating in the middle of nowhere. So there's a cha- we need another change there, and I believe we need to amend the Federal Soldiers and Sailors Civil Relief Act to prohibit spouses of active active duty military from permanently moving children to other states without the permission mm-hmm. of that dad or a court order. And so this is another solution to the problem. But there's a there are problems, but there are solutions but the biggest problem right now is there are a lot of good dads in the military and they need to protect their rights within the within the rights they have uh, until they change and also these deployed dads need to keep in touch with their children and it's right. not it's not easy but there are, there are ways to do it
1: yep we're going to get into that in just a minute uh, I'm talking with Jeffrey Leving, who's a father's rights attorney based in Chicago and also the author of a number of books. And we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Jeff. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, talking with Jeffrey Leving, who is the author of Father's Rights and also a father's rights attorney in Chicago and has extensive experience dealing with dads in the military and moms in the military as well. So, Jeff, I want you to, to, for the next couple minutes that we've got here, talk about some of the the strategies, the kinds of things that parents need to do to protect themselves. And, of course, this this is another one of these things like prenuptial agreements and what we were talking about before about the signatories to the Hague conventions that, you know, nobody wants to think about these things. But, you know, before you leave to go on deployment, are there things that you should do? Definitely, even even if the relationship is fine.
3: Even if the relationship is fine, one, if there's a court order setting child support for you to pay, the relationship may appear fine, but it may not be if that support order is in place. A lot of dads come to me and they tell me, oh, uh, uh, it's a wonderful relationship. Everything will work out when I get back. Well, if everything will work out, why is there a child support order that can put this dad Uh, in jail at some time in the future it destroys credit so no matter how wonderful your relationship may seem if there's a child support order if there's a child support order you want to get into court and reduce it asap before arrears build up to the point you'll never be able to pay them back Two, if you're not married and if you have a child born out of wedlock and you have nothing to protect your legal rights for instance, in Illinois, if you sign what's called a VAP, a voluntary acknowledgment of paternity, legally you're considered the father. If you don't sign that, you better have some type of court order acknowledging paternity, or you're not the dad. Legally, you're not considered the father. And the last thing a dad wants to do is end up losing his child, or, or 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 an adoption occurs, and next thing he knows, he's he's blindsided and he's losing what may be one of the most important things in his life to him. So the key here is if 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 you're if it's not a marriage, if you've had a child or children out of wedlock before you're deployed, make sure your legal rights to your child or children are protected. And that varies from state to state, but it's still very similar, very, very similar. And I have a lot of good information on that on a website I put together, dadsrights.com. A lot of good information, D-A-D-S-R-I-G-H-T-S dot com. But you have to know your legal rights. And too many dads don't. And keep in mind, according to one study, I read more than 900,000 children have experienced deployment of a parent numerous times.
1: Yeah. So yeah. Th-
3: this, is, this is a real issue.
1: All right. So let's go back a little bit to... Uh... A situation where you you're getting hit with divorce papers. You you find out that you're you're going to be divorced. You either you, your your wife files, or for that matter, your husband files. You know, we can tr- talk about this in a relatively gender neutral way. Um, what do you do to protect yourself when somebody has filed for divorce against you?
3: Well, the first thing you want to do is get a lawyer that's competent. And there are a lot of lawyers out there that are not very skilled in this. Practice area because law schools are churning out more lawyers than than the marketplace can utilize, so there are a lot of lawyers that can 't find jobs they don 't practice law at very high skill levels and they and they end up hanging out a shingle they 'll do work they 're not capable of doing and and the victims obviously uh, are not going to be them because these lawyers may not even have insurance. So if you, you you sue an incompetent lawyer with no money and no insurance, what are you going to get? Nothing, so you have to be really careful. you really need competent counsel that 's the first step and i 've written a bunch of books, and in all my books, I talk about how to hire a lawyer there 's always a section on that because it 's critical yeah. um,
1: well give us give us some of the practical tips there
3: go online and find and and find out everything you can find out about whatever attorney you want to utilize because right now. Uh, there's so much information online; it's unbelievable. When I was a lawyer, a young lawyer, I was licensed in 1979. It was hard to investigate anything without a good detective. Uh, but now, w- with the internet, you could find out almost everything and anything. So, find out. Uh, you, you may have uh, an attorney who's been disbarred. You may have a lawyer who has just been allowed to practice law again after a serious drug problem, after a heroin addiction, and he's getting a second chance. Well, I believe in second chances, but make sure that if this lawyer's second chance uh, uh, it doesn't work, you're not one of the victims. So go online, and also, uh, if you could talk to a former client of an attorney uh, that you want to hire, former clients could be good sources. Uh, so See if you could talk to a former client or two. Uh, In my office, I have a lot of former clients. A lot of them work for me, and uh, and uh, because I take care of, I watch everybody's back in my office. Somebody's in my my office. They have a problem. You know, I'm I'm going to protect them and outside of my office too. But talk to former, talk to former clients, and also um, make sure the lawyer isn't bsing you. Uh, If a lawyer tells you he or she specializes in family law in Illinois, you know they're either lying to you or they don't know the law because there's no specialty in matrimonial law, family law in Illinois. Now, there is such a specialization in California, not in Illinois. Be careful. I've Mm -hmm. interviewed lawyers for jobs in my own law firm uh, that have made up stories to me (laughs) I interviewed, and and it was just unbelievable. I mean, these are licensed lawyers making up stories to me. I had one man come to me and interview for a job as a lawyer, and I checked him out. He didn't didn't even have a law license. He was a fraud. So you really have to check these check whatever lawyers you're considering out yeah. and be real careful because if you hire a bad lawyer, that could be the beginning to of the end for you and your relationship with your children. Now, how,
1: how much of this stuff, Jeff, can be done either, well, you know, by buying a NOLO press book or by going to the courthouse and, and often they'll have, have people, legal aid lawyers or clerks or somebody who can help you through this stuff. Are, are these these the kinds of things, divorce and custody and child support orders, are these the kinds of things that that are 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 smart to do on your own?
3: Well, nothing is dumb. Everything is smart to consider. And and you 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 can do that, but the best really the best route is just getting a lawyer you can trust, who's competent, who's going to be honest with you and who's going to fight for you, who's going to watch your back. That's really the key. And if you go to a lawyer, who's who 's handled few family law cases and he's doing you a friend because he he's he, doing you a favor because he 's your friend. He may not be doing you a favor if he doesn 't know how to how to represent you uh, i'm I feel sometimes as if i 'm the cleanup man because I get a lot of fathers that come to me after their cases have been botched up, and sometimes by close friends of theirs that think they 're doing them a favor, but if you have a close friend. Who isn't an expert? Who is incompetent in this area of the law? And he's helping you because he cares about you. He's better off getting you a lawyer that can help you, and than uh, doing it himself if he can't and he botches your case up. You really need somebody who's very, very, very skillful. And another thing I like to tell everybody that's listening: uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of that's uh, sometimes suffering from PTSD. Uh, or other ailments feel that their relationships with their children are over. My brother, uh, uh, who was in Vietnam, he was in uh, the military, he's suffering from PTSD. He's a great father. His child's grown now. I represented one Iraqi war veteran suffering from PTSD. He was worried he'd he'd never even be a father again. The court gave him residential custody of his four-year-old son. Uh, after the conclusion of a highly contested trial, so this is important too. You have to remember a lot of a lot of lawyers that don't know this area of the law will tell that. Uh, oh, you'll never get anything. You, you, you're you're suffering from PTSD. That's BS. Uh, uh, we have a client who's the who we were able to get custody. Uh, for of his four-year-old, and he was diagnosed as mm-hmm. suffering from PTSD. So be careful. Sometimes lawyers uh, w- w- work in areas of law. They shouldn't be working. And yeah. I interviewed one lawyer for a job, and he told me, oh, Illinois doesn't have joint custody. It's so bad for fathers. Illinois doesn't have joint custody, and we need it. I co-authored the Illinois joint custody law years ago. So here's a lawyer telling me we don't have a law in Illinois that I co-authored. So I knew right away I couldn't hire him. No, this this no. lawyer sounded incompetent.
1: All right, so just we only have a little bit less than a minute left, but just give us quickly about behavior because that's such a such a huge thing. If you go spouting off, or you start doing violent things, or even just angry things, uh, you can you can hurt your chances of maintaining any kind of relationship with your kids.
3: Exactly, control your temper. Uh, my dad always used to tell me, if you lose your your head, your blank goes with it. You never want law enforcement involved or, or the courts involved in domestic violence matters where, a, where you're uh, accused uh, as being a predator because the system is very pro-female in domestic violence issues. Be really, really careful. You don't want to get involved in domestic violence if you're in a bad relationship, you're baited, and even if you get pushed... Don't touch her. Walk away and get out of there, because if you touch her, you'll probably end up incarcerated.
1: All right. Jeffrey Leving, It's L-E-V-I-N-G. is the author of Father's Rights and Father's Rights Attorney in Illinois and elsewhere. And he said the website was dadsrights.com, right? Correct. Okay. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. I'm the only one in school that can tie his own shoes. Most
1: kids make fun of me because I still believe in the tooth fairy. A third of the kids in my eighth grade class drink
2: alcohol regularly. Over 99% of my class has been offered illegal drugs.
0: Half of my college classmates binge drink, abuse drugs, or do both. But the frequent dinners I had with my family have helped make sure I'm not one of them.
2: Learn more about the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University's Family Day at casafamilyday.org. Dinner makes a difference.
1: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat. And I want to jump right into today's Ask Mr. Dad segment because it deals with something that I'm constantly hearing other people do. Dear Mr. Dad, I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but I'm sick and tired of hearing parents tell their kids that they're awesome or amazing or incredible or any of the other overused words people use these days. The fact is that most kids aren't any of those things. I'm wondering whether we're doing damage to our society with our nonstop praise. What's your take on this? You know, I could not agree with you more. We live in an era where we give kids trophies for showing up regardless of how well they play. And we rave about everything they do, whether it's rave-worthy or not. And in most cases, honestly, it's really not. It all started a few decades ago with some very well-intentioned mental health professionals who told us that low self-esteem was the root of all problems. In the mid-1980s, the state of California did a very expensive report on self-esteem that summed this up quite nicely. Quote, Lack of self-esteem is central to most personal and social ills plaguing our state and nation as we approach the end of the 20th century. The solution, suggested by those same mental health professionals, was to make people, especially kids, feel good about themselves. So we started praising our children more than our parents of previous generations did. Over time, that praise ballooned into worship, and the results have not been pretty. The first casualty, I think, was the English language, honestly, which lost the use of perfectly good words like awesome, which no longer means what people think it does. Does my asking for extra pickles, I often wonder about this, on my sandwich really rate totally awesome from the guy who's making the sandwich? But the true victims of our excessive praise have been our children. Study after study has found that too much praise does exactly the opposite of what we hope. It reduces children's self-esteem, lowers their motivation, and discourages them from taking risks, challenging themselves, and trying new things. Two types of praise, inflated praise, that is the most amazing drawing I've ever seen, and personal praise, you're awesome, are especially likely to backfire, according to Eddie Brummelman, who's a researcher at the University of Amsterdam. And the lower the kids' self-esteem to begin with, the worse the results. Here's how it works. Our kids aren't idiots. They know perfectly well that you're lying when you say, that's the most amazing drawing I've ever seen. But they don't want to disappoint you. So the next time they have a chance to try something new, they'll opt for something easy. If they end up failing, they'll feel much worse about themselves than kids who receive what's called process praise, which focuses on the work a child puts in rather than the outcome, for example, wow, you got an A, you really worked hard on that, versus wow, you got an A, you are incredibly smart. Unfortunately, as a culture, we have a tendency to value what we see as natural ability over hard work. Most schools, for example, have programs for gifted and talented kids. But according to Stanford mathematics professor Joe Bowler, labeling of students as gifted hurts not only the students who are deemed as having no gifts, but also the students who are given the gifted label. That sounds counterintuitive, right? But as Bowler explains, calling kids gifted sets them on a fixed mindset pathway, making them vulnerable and less likely to take risks in order to avoid making mistakes and potentially losing their gifted status. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not saying we should never praise our kids. Of course we should. But that praise needs to be sincere and focus on things they can change. Things like hard work, for example instead of abstract qualities like intelligence that they can't change. If you've got a topic or a question or a suggestion for us here at Positive Parenting, drop us a line through the website, MrDad.com. We'll be back next week with another Ask Mr. Dad segment or a Parents at Play segment, depending on which week it is. Hey, but don't go quite yet because, as you know, there's a lot more Positive Parenting coming right up.
0: Get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brant from the MrDad.com radio network.
1: Hey there, welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Bront. You know, in our hyper-connected, social media-saturated society, many of us, especially young people, are so obsessed with snapping selfies and living a virtual life online that we're forgetting how to care for the people right in front of us, IRL, which stands for in real life. The resulting selfie syndrome is leading to an empathy crisis among today's youth. Teens today are 40% less empathetic than they were just a generation ago, and narcissism has increased 58% during the same period. But there's a solution. Studies are showing now that the antidote to selfie syndrome is empathy. And the good news is that empathy can actually be cultivated in children starting even before they can talk. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with esteemed educator Michelle Borba. She has got new, compelling research that explains how to impart this key skill to kids, whether it's teaching toddlers how to comfort one another or giving teens the tools to stand up to bullying, and why empathy paves the way for future happiness and success. Caring about others isn't just about playing nice. It's a skill that's vital for children's mental health, leadership skills, and continued well-being today And tomorrow. I'm Armin Broad. We will start talking about how to give our kids an empathy advantage when positive parenting continues right after this.
0: Maria Inez Phillips talks about not recycling.
2: I've got too many newspapers and magazines and catalogs in there with plastic containers and bottles and cans. Your trash can is full of recyclables? No, it's full of trash. You say trash, Maria. I say rubbish. Whatever it is, I'm not going through it. I just don't get it. Some things are very obvious, Maria.
0: Learn the difference between trash and recycling and more.
2: I put out way too much trash to think about recycling.
0: Visit yougottobekidding.org today.
1: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Bratt, and my guest for this part of today's show is Michelle Borba, who is the author of many books, including the most recent one, Unselfie: Why Empathetic Kids Succeed in Our All About Me World. Michelle, thanks for joining us.
2: Oh, you're so welcome. Or welcome Glad back. To be back.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Let Let's talk about empathy. I think obviously we're going to be talking about that for the whole show here. But how do you, how are you defining empathy? Because I think it's oh. it's a very very broad word
2: yeah and i and too often it's it's mixed up with the word sympathy so sympathy is feeling for someone empathy is miraculously glorious because it's feeling with someone and when you feel with someone this is the trait that activates our kids' hearts so you're more likely to step in be morally courageous help another person use pro social behaviors and that's why it's so incredible. And the, the other thing that's wonderful about it is that we now know from the last latest science that our hard, children are already hardwired at birth for it, but it must be nurtured.
1: Yeah, I remember there were some really fantastic studies. I think it was about nine-month-old kids who yeah. try to help somebody who dropped a pencil. Yep. Uh, yeah, I mean, but, and it, I guess it takes a special kind of researcher to say, oh, okay, let's call that empathy, though. I mean, is that really empathy, or is that just... It's the seeds, it's
2: planting the seeds of it. It's going to take a little bit longer for a child actually to be able to say, oh, I know how she feels, and I feel the same way. But what we know is there's almost like a trajectory or little stepping stones along the way, and the first step is actually emotional contagion, which is really amazing at three days of age, where they've put... Recorders in newborn nurseries had the baby uh, record the baby crying, and then they put a recorder in the little guy two doors down in the other crib. But when they put that recorder inside the baby, he wails. He wails. But then you put your own baby's cry in, and he doesn't cry. So there's something that's just wonderfully going on there. And the real lucky thing is that researchers have become very crafty at figuring out how to analyze even our youngest one's little heart muscles.
1: All right. So what happens, though? So if we're born with the seeds of it, clearly it doesn't develop in all of us at the same pace. Yes. Uh, So mean, is it an on-the-job training kind of thing?
2: Yes. And that's the piece that I think is the real takeaway. I got interested in this topic and wrote on Selfie because I looked at one piece of research that was scathing, and it says that in just in the last 30 years, we've had a 40% drop in empathy amongst incoming college freshmen and at the same time a 58% increase. And that is across the board from zip code to zip code. It's the same uh, researcher who has been analyzing kids' incoming college freshmen giving the same inventory, and then watch this drop. So we do know, though you're hardwired for it, unless we as parents deliberately nurture it, it will lie dormant, Mm -hmm. and I think a lot of kids are in sleep mode. The other thing what we're noticing is today's culture is not one that's real conducive to raising a caring kid. When you have uh, role models that you need and used to be just... Ten years ago, our children wanted to grow up and be a leader or a teacher or a doctor in the helping profession. The number one thing they now want to be is rich or famous. (laughs) So there's a switch that's happening. Celebrityism is doing one part of it. Quick fist. Fixed discipline is doing another piece of it. Uh, NYU Martin Hoffman's incredible work said the best kind of discipline isn't the quick fix timeout, but it's the five minutes afterwards. So, what did you do wrong? I want you to know I am disappointed in you because I see you as a caring person. So, what are we going to do next time? It's those just that minute afterwards no. and in called inductive re- discipline that is enormously powerful on stretching kids' empathy. But
1: you just made reference to one word, which I think puts the, the death to the whole thing for a lot of people, which is disappointed. You don't want to tell your kids that you're disappointed yes. because of where we think that's all going with self-esteem yes. and all that stuff, which is something that we as parents have got to get out of our heads, yes. that it's okay to be disappointed. I mean, you don't want to shame your kids, but it's okay for them to feel that they haven't lived up to expectations.
2: Yes. Apparently, I'm so glad you brought that up because shaming is the worst thing. That actually reduces empathy. They've really got this down of what works and what doesn't. But but telling your child I'm disappointed in not you but in your behavior because and then telling him I expect you to be caring. Oh I know you're a caring person. So how are you going to redo that really helps the child internalize your values of caring. The other thing we do wrong is our messages. Uh, Harvard did a phenomenal study. 20,000 parents and teens. This was last year. Asking kids and parents, how important are grades and how important is it to be caring? Even though parents said it's really important, I want my child to be caring. Kids said by far, 80% of them said, the only thing my parent wants is me to get good grades. How important is it you to care? Only about 20% of the kids said it. So it means we're not intentional enough with our messages. First tip on that one is, Feel free when your little guy comes home to say how was school and how hard did you work, but also said, so what nice things did you do or what caring thing did you see? Because those messages after a while build up, and so the child begins to realize what matters to mommy or daddy.
1: So how do you get these kids, though, to eventually get to a point where they're on autopilot and they're looking for these messages and looking for these these opportunities in their day-to-day life without us having to point them out and without us having to tell them, what to do? I mean, that's that's the whole. It seems to me to be the purpose of parenting in general is to get your yes. kids at some point to be yes. to be able to make good decisions.
2: Yes, uh, I love that because that's the whole point is for the kid to be able to thrive someday without us. What I discovered is that empathy, actually, there's nine different habits that kids need in order to finally be able to reach in, live well, and be morally courageous so they do stand up to others. The second habit is called moral identity, and it came out of a fascinating Stanford study. We've been hearing so much about how our messages help, in, help our children develop grit and perseverance. So we tell them all, let's, let's make sure that we emphasize effort, effort, and not what you get, But the same person who did that research now says we also need to develop caring mindsets in our children. And one way to do that is the discipline, I expect you to do this because this is the kind of person you are, so the child internalizes it. Another one you can do is actually developing a family mission statement. Here's what we stand for in this house. Here's who we are. And if you say it loud enough and over enough and it's sticky enough, it actually becomes internalized. I I interviewed Hmm. hundreds of kids when I was writing this book, and the fascinating thing is when I asked kids who I thought were real change makers, just just ordinary kids who were really doing some extraordinary caring things out in the world. How'd you get that way was a big question, and they said it was because of how my mom or dad raised me. They kept saying, we're the caring Perlins, or in this family, we help, not hurt. Uh, One girl said that, the one thing that, when she went away to college, that she had to take as her grandmother needle pointed her a pillow of their just their family mission statement. Hmm. And I thought, oh, how simple is that? But moral identity is one piece of it because yeah. you get to have heart, but you also need a moral rudder to guide you to do the right thing.
1: You know, but I can hear the eye rolling from from here. You know, that kids, a lot of kids. I guess it would depend on when you start this, but I think if yeah. you if you have teenagers and you start this right now. Yep. it's you've got a tough road. You to do home, have
2: right? it. Well, the first thing is we wait too late to have all those important talks. So if there's any yeah. words of wise, start early. But the other thing was fascinating is I had an incredible U.S. Air Force cadet ask me the question of my life and was, how do you become moral? I'm going to go out and lead troops, he said, and I want to become, I'll never forget his words, an ethical warrior and do what's right for them, not just me, So, Dr. Borba, what would Nelson Mandela and Mother Teresa do, or Abraham Lincoln? And I thought, my gosh, nobody has ever asked me that. I read the memoirs of 50 Nobel Peace Prize winners, and one of the things they all did was memorize key passages. Like Abraham Lincoln would memorize Shakespearean passages that resonated with his morality, and it got him through the Civil War. So I saw a high school do that, and what they did for teens is they gave each one of them for the whole senior year a journal write down a quote if it resonates with you. If your grandfather, your mother, or somebody says something that you think really means something to you, write it down. These kids would show it to me about right now when graduation comes out. And the fascinating thing is a lot, one child, it was all quotes from his grandfather. He says, I never used to tune into what he said, but all of a sudden when my teacher said, write the stuff down. I began to go, wow, he's really saying some good stuff, and it's helping me live better. So I thought, what a great idea that is. Uh, Some parents do that at nighttime. They just find quotes to just talk Hmm. about. Or another one, Armin, I think is so important, is to share with your kids good news it's always in the back page of the newspaper but what's shutting our children's empathy down our compassion fatigue is they're only seeing the bad stuff in the world and you know you look at the front page of the newspaper and you, you wouldn't want to get up out of bed yourself but if you start sharing inspiring stories about real kids who are doing simple things to make a difference it inspires your heart and mm-hmm. also helps you to begin to realize hey i can do that too yeah. so it's a simple idea to do at dinner time Or uh, even before your child goes to bed for little ones, because what will happen is nightmares go down, they'll sleep better, and they remember these inspiring stories.
1: Right. Talking to Michelle Borbo, who's the author of Unselfie, Why Empathetic Kids Succeed in Our All About Me World. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Michelle. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat. If you're just joining us, talking with Michelle Borba, who's the author of Unselfie, Why Empathetic Kids Succeed in Our All About Me World. What, Michelle, is the difference in your view between empathy
2: and compassion? Ah, uh, good question. Empathy to me comes before compassion. E- compassion is the action. So in it, it's actually a little more soft because empathy, we now know, is the real activator it's going to lead to compassion and lead to caring, but you first have to have that moment that is, oh my gosh, she feels really sad. Oh, I felt that way once. Oh, what can I do to help? And it, it continues to lead through. The majority of researchers are now saying that the real seeds for caring, compassion, and all those glorious heart things that we want our kids to do start with empathy. But empathy needs not only moral identity, but habits to help instill it. Like practicing kindness is one thing. So the more you practice it, the more you come it, and then you begin to see how much it's a worthwhile trait, but also you see yourself as somebody who can do it. We just, I think what we've mm-hmm. done is we've narrowed our view of success so much as a GPA or an SAT score that all that stuff on the other side of the report card, people skills, ability to get along with others that employers are actually says it's going to give your kid the economic edge and the employment boost, yeah. are, are taking a downward slide here. So it doesn't mean you have to stop doing what you're doing, but we've got to make room for this thing called empathy, because not only is it tanking in our kids, most of them seven and a half hours a day are plugged into some kind of a digital device. You don't learn empathy facing a screen. Yeah. You only learn it by facing another human being. It's face-to-face connection that I really worry about. Uh, and the Internet's here to stay, and yeah. there's good no, parts just... to it all. But it just means let's weave it in so we have this thing called conversations with our children <laughs> and face-to-face eye contact because then they can tune in and see, oh, she looks upset or he looks sad. You yeah. need emotional literacy to be able to read somebody else's feelings as well.
1: But so here, here's the the question, I guess. is So you're talking about empathy. We're talking about compassion. And talking about it is... Fine and dandy, and having a family mission statement is all fine and dandy. But I would imagine you get a lot of pushback on this from parents who say, "Look, me and my wife, we're we're both working full time jobs. We haven't got time to to volunteer, or we haven't got time to you know, go to Costa Rica and build houses, you know, or whatever mm-hmm. people do to to be good-hearted, or even to go down to a local soup kitchen and serve meals on on a Friday afternoon or something. You know, it, we can't do that. So, I mean, kids are going to be able to see through this." let's talk about being the the caring brats, but, you know, show me, show me. I mean, you know, so much of parenting is about showing, being a good example, right? So if you don't have time, and I'm sure that that a lot of people are saying, oh, yeah, yeah, great, great idea, Borba, but, you know, come on.
2: The fascinating thing is I've never seen anything resonate more with a parent. I've been doing speeches all over the country, and I just did a TED Talk this week that was called Empathy is a Verb. The big other mistake I'm seeing is that exactly what you said. But we, we're talking about it at 6 o'clock. It's not a lecture or in school. It's not a worksheet. It's got to be real, meaningful activities, and it's got to be driven by your child. So the first thing you can do to start boosting your child's empathy, Unselfie has over 500 activities. Choose any of them. But figure out what's going to work for you. Is just realize that the best way for kids to learn empathy is by seeing it. Model it yourself. If your child were to describe you, how, what virtues would come up with you, and that's a key. Uh, fascinating thing is they looked at the most altruistic individuals, and every one of them, all the rescuers from World War II, from the rescued perfect strangers from the Holocaust, they're interviewing the surviving rescuers, and there's quite a number of them. And everyone on the top, they always said it was how I, how I was raised. It was because my mother was caring and expected me to be so myself. Number two, everything we're already doing with our children. Chapter four is all about the power of emotionally charged books. Charlotte's Web, Stone Fox, those ones you need you know, Kleenex to get through. The new research says they're emotionally impactful to a child, and what will actually happen is a part of the child's brain where perspective taking comes through if they're reading those kinds of It's called literary fiction. It actually charges the child's brain. Hmm. So read them. Step into the shoes. Some parents are doing Saturday, you're already watching a film. Just do okay. Watch a film together. But make sure it's an emotionally charged film. Like Dumbo, how would you feel if that happened? Do you get in your shoes of Dumbo? How are you feeling? It doesn't have to be difficult, and it doesn't have to be long. It needs to be regular and just intentional, and you'll find Dozens of ways yeah. to weave it in as soon as you realize why empathy matters and simple ways that you can just tune it up.
1: You know, I just saw a movie, which I could have sworn was about an hour and a half long. It turns out it was about 20 minutes long. And it was at my, my parents live in a retirement community in California. Uh-huh. Had, we happened. I to took my 13-year-old daughter out there to visit my parents, and they were showing a, a short movie about the Sugihara family. And Sugihara, probably nobody knows that, but he was a consul general in Romania in during World War II, and there were the the Jews from Poland were fleeing Poland, and a lot of them ended up at this consulate. And so this guy, over the course of a couple of months, did he wrote thousands, I mean literally thousands by hand in Japanese of exit visas, and he completely ruined his career. I mean, he was he was fired. He was pilloried. He was he spent some time in a in a camp because he had done these things that his uh, employers told him not to do. But he uh, so there was somebody in the in the crowd there, um, my parents' age, who actually knew this gentleman and his wife, and they said that never they never had any regrets at all. That it was always they always felt mm-hmm. kind of exactly what you said, which was we did the right thing. This is yes. what we had to do. There was no choice here.
2: Yes. What if I I'm you don't see my head nodding up and down, but I remember reading that story. That man is enormously powerful and how inspirational. But here's the thing that's really interesting. In my old psych ed days way back when, we were told that conscience comes first and then comes heart. Now we know it's the reverse. First, you look at somebody, you get charged with it, you go, oh, my gosh, and your empathy sets in, and then a lot of times that's how you act, and your, your actions go that way. But watching a movie like that certainly is powerful. Or maybe the neighbor next door is an inbound neighbor. Make one more extra batch of cookies once a week and have your child bring it over to them. Or Skype with Grandma. Don't just text or talk, Skype. But as you do, take two seconds before and go, how do you think Aunt Grandma's going to be feeling today? Well, watch your face and you'll know a little better. It's just subtle little things to help your child tune in a little closer. And what will happen is the emotional literacy will open up, and then you'll just have more practice routine opportunities. Maybe it's just keeping a box by your front door so that there is a gently used toy or a gently used book to just put it there. And then once a month, let's as a family, not you, mom or dad, as a family, let's go take it to of uh, someone so that they can be appreciative of it. It's that face-to-face connection that gives you that what's called a helper's high. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. When you do that and you see the response of someone who is so grateful for you, you can't not stop doing it again. It's the best yeah. source of happiness. Where What we've done is try to give our kids happiness, when in reality the best, the new research says, uh-uh, it's got to come from the inside out. And when your child does something for others, there is no Better, more wonderful thing that opens up your child 's heart
1: well, I'm get them involved in the decisions about these things too. I think it 's great for parents to take their kids to whatever sorts of activities we think would be great for them. but i for example, like I get a ton of toys in here to to review, and I do a, a newspaper column that 's just nothing but toy reviews and do a seal of approval program, so lots and lots of stuff and i every every couple of months because there 's that much of it, I talk to my daughter and say, what do you want to do with these things, you know, now that we've had a chance to play with them, or sometimes we get mm-hmm. two of them and they're totally brand new. And so there are some churches in the neighborhood that we donate toys to, and there's some uh, organizations for, for you know, young kids who don't have a lot of money, and, I mean, thrift stores for cancer patients, and, you know, we, we donate stuff all over the place, and she's involved in this. I mean, this is yeah. her choice. I don't care. I mean, I would like it to go someplace to somebody who doesn't, You know, somebody who needs it, but uh, as opposed to those of us who don't need it, really. Uh, You know, so that it's getting her involved, I think, makes her feel good. And I can see it in her face.
2: It's really empowering, isn't it? And you said the wonderful word with. (laughs) We're doing it together. It becomes an amazing memory. So many of the change makers I talked to, all of them said uh, one thing that I think is really important. A lot of times we get our kids involved in something. Because too often it's going to look good on a college Ivy League, you know, letter. But the best thing that I just found is that kids said, oh, no, my mom just watched me, and she knew that I was really concerned about that homeless man, and so she asked me, what do you want to do about it? They sat and they brainstormed together, and then the parents supported the child's passion. Well, that's where you really get efficacy, competence, opening the doors up, and so many of these kids are now continuing to uh, the, the child in Northern California who realized, because he loved to read, so he volunteered to go and read one time at the local public library. And all of a sudden he realized that half the kids didn't own a book. So he started a, a book drive, not you know by sending fifty thousand coins to Biafra, but by just putting boxes in his backyard and just put signs around. He has donated like over ten thousand books now wow. because he's got his wow. friends helping him, and they're just breaking through this enormous thing of hey, we can make a difference, and it's called just opening literacy. A lemonade stand is another one. We used to do those in the old days. Remember those? Oh yeah. But it's, yeah. then it's having the child choose what the cause is and giving that money directly. Most of the kids said the value that really opened their hearts was the moment they saw the response. It was face-to-face connection, and that's what opened it, and it became this trajectory that they had to keep doing and doing. It's called concrete charity. We have to start when our kids do it so they see it Till finally they can collect the coins and send it to overseas to help hunger or poverty. That's abstract. But it's a slow opening of a heart so a child realizes it, and you can find so many of those ideas and opportunities yeah. just in your own neighborhood.
1: Michelle Borbo is the author of Unselfie, Why Empathetic Kids Succeed in Our All About Me World. Michelle, always a delight. Thanks very much.
2: You are so welcome. Thank you.